So this morning, uh, I want to I get somewhere that I feel is very important, and so it's just been kind of weighing on me a, a long time. That we've we got to talk about something that I don't think we normally think to talk about. But I want to kind of start by just talking about emotions. And emotions are an interesting thing. They run us more than I think we realize. Uh, but to really understand the power of emotions, you almost have to get back to your childhood because there's something fascinating about when you're in control of your life or when you can make decisions or when you feel like you can um, strive that you don't feel the emotion the way you do when you're helpless. So if you think about your childhood, um, the first time you realized that your dad or your mom wasn't perfect and they hurt you, like you felt that. The first time uh, a friend was supposed to come over or pick you up and they just didn't come or didn't call because back before cell phones, like the calling thing was, you know, but you're sitting there and you're waiting and you're waiting and you begin to feel lonely and then you begin to feel awkward and helpless and isolated and, and you feel that. Um, the first time you wear clothes to school that you think are current or that, that you feel good about and then you get to school and the way the kids treat you, you begin to realize that you actually look really, really silly. And it's terrifying and you don't, have a car that you can drive home in and change clothes and you finish out the day uh, with those clothes and you just feel like everyone's looking at you or the playground when you get bullied that time that there's just no way out of and everybody's watching and nobody seems to help um, and you're stuck and you feel it very significantly and, and there's that the time when you're um, actually jealous because somebody else seems to have it all right. Their clothes actually do look cool. Or people are actually respecting them and you feel that sense of envy um, differently. But when we go to kind of our childhood, we, we remember these things are like burned into our mind, those emotions. And we, we realize that they go so deep, like uh, they define us. And when we get to being adults and we do have cars and cell phones and lines of credit and um, we've learned that if we work really hard or strive really hard, we can try and control our circumstances or control our peer group or the way other people are see, uh, seeing things and we, we can kind of steer into stuff that the emotions, they're there and they're so very real, but we don't sit in them, we don't feel them maybe as strongly because we're trying so hard to rectify that tension or, or resolve that tension. Does that make sense? But if you think about that time of utter loneliness or utter paranoia or, or utter fear, the first time you remember just being awake at two in the morning as a kid trying to walk to your parents' bedroom because you absolutely believe the bad guy is going to get you. Um, for me, I, I remember, does anyone remember the, the made-for-TV show called um, The Day After? I think it was The Day After. Do you guys remember this in the 80s? I was in a hotel a month ago, and they were doing a, a profile on the 80s, and it was 
I don't know what it was. It was, it was the craziest hour-long History Channel that I've ever watched uh, because I lived that, right? But they, they did this part where they were talking about the Cold War and, and the, the kind of threat of nuclear war, and they were profiling this made-for-TV movie. It was kind of like a mini-series or two nights in a row, and it was called The Day After, and it was about um, the day after kind of uh, nuclear war. And they were showing clips from it, and it's like the minute they said the words day after, it's like I popped up because I remember, I mean, I remember vividly sitting on my couch in Maine where we used to live, watching the TV and having this movie so freak me out. And then for about a year, I had, tr I had trouble going to sleep at night. I would, I would lay, I mean, because you know, Maine is the first state that would get wiped out. But I, uh, I would literally lay down in bed, and I had a window. We were on the, I was on the second floor of a two-story home. And I, I just would lay down and just keep imagining this flash of light. And then, and then nothing, death, right? And it was just so unbelievably powerful that for a year, um, I, I couldn't fall asleep at night. Um, that's... That's what emotions kind of do. They absolutely control and affect um, everything down to the deepest levels, the spiritual levels of your life. So there's this thing that I think we're dealing with as Christians, that I think I'm dealing with, that I think you're dealing with, that I think Christians in Bend are dealing with, I think Christians in America are dealing with. And that's this idea that I think in leadership circles, they, they always talk about finishing well. You ever hear that phrase? It's, a very, um, it's not a very powerful phrase. They, they talk about strong words and weak words. I think that, that phrase, finishing well, is really weak language. You hear it and you're just like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. Now. You know what I mean? Like it just, it, it, it doesn't grab you. But the concept is simply this, that, that everybody, especially leaders, because leaders uh, are mavericks or they're strong personalities or they have a lot of passion or zeal or whatever it is. But they talk about how leaders start and then if you, if you go down the road that very few leaders finish well, especially um, pastors or people in ministry. The statistics are unbelievable. Uh, after 10 years, people that go into full-time or vocational ministry, how many of them are, are still in vocational ministry? And so they talk about this concept of, of finishing well and, and that nobody really finishes well. And then, you know, if you're in kind of Christian leadership circles, you get into scripture and you start looking at examples of who finished well. And it's an incredibly difficult thing to find examples of leaders who have finished really well. There's a, I remember seeing something where they compared Billy Graham against other people who started out with him when he began in ministry. And it was unbelievable to see how almost everybody that was at his level or his peers, none of them really finished the way he did. And it's just this unbelievable thing of people who finish well. And again, you're like, well, that just seems very far removed from me, very boring. Let me put it to you a different way. I think as Christians, all Christians, not just leaders, we struggle with this idea of being all in for the Lord, but then not being able to sustain that. You can read the book Radical that's been on the New York Times bestseller and about how 
a radical faith for Christ, how being completely sold out is really what Christianity is all about, or you can just listen to me talk about give your life away. And you begin to get this sense that you gotta be all in, you gotta be 100%, you gotta be full tilt, you gotta just be sold out, and and it kinda gets you excited maybe, and we talk about it together, and we think about what we can do as a community, and we, we, we can feed on that emotion, we can get hopped up on it, and we can actually believe it and want it, but what about a month in, or a year in, or five years in, or 10 years in, what about when the people you start with begin to fall away, or turn on you, or betray you? What about when your energy levels aren't what they were when you thought you could take on the world and you begin to struggle with health, or depression, or stress, or just a a lack of drive? You don't feel it here anymore. And I think that one of the things we're dealing with in American Christianity is that it's just incredibly hard for us to understand what it really looks like to endure and to follow and to stick with and to sustain and to persevere. And there's not much talk about that because it's the long, slow, boring walk of obedience, the slow, boring walk of faith that that doesn't make for great sermons. But if we really peel it back, it's, it's, it's what we're really struggling with. That's, that's what I think. So I wanna steer it just even a little bit more specifically and say that we talk about the goal or the perfect or the standard. We do that in America, right? I mean, everything we start with what the ideal would be. We're, we're, we're very optimistic people. Um, we believe we can achieve anything. Uh, I'm 40 years old, and when I watch American Idol, I actually, and I've never sung on key in my life, but when I watch American Idol, I actually think maybe, maybe when I grow up, I can be on American Idol. (laughs) I just need to work at it a little bit, practice. Uh, I don't have a good voice, but I'm smart. I can get around that. I just figure style where bad singing actually equals good singing. And um, just go the Bob Dylan route. I, but I, I, find my, I find myself thinking, well, how would I do this? You know, you know what I mean? It's, we're just so, I mean, how many of you think about starting a new career at least once a week? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I had some people over last night, um, not supposed to share this kind of thing, but my small group, because I, I have a small group. And I do an Antioch small group. It's called Every Six Weeks Invite Some Friends Over for, for the Fights. <laughs> That's my small group. But I actually think, never mind. It's kind of like the American Idol thing, but even sillier. <laughs> Carry on, yeah. yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about, though. Um, we're very optimistic and we can, we can squint our eyes and we can believe anything is possible. And when it comes to Christianity, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an amazing thing. It's such a, a wonderful opportunity to have a relationship with the God of the universe, to be reconciled and to walk with your creator. And we get so excited about that and what all the benefits of that are and look like that we focus on the end and we don't always see the challenges. 
And challenges um, when we realize the reality and the messiness of life are our impatience as Americans, that we're entitled and so we fr- we're frustrated often thinking we should be getting more, deserving more, enjoying more than what we really do. And then here's the word I wanna camp on. We also never really look at what envy is doing in our hearts what envy is doing in our hearts, how it's making us bitter, how we strive because of it, and how it really prevents us from having the relationship with God that I think we all desire. If you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, I want to take us to a familiar passage on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. In the context of this book, is it's a... It's a book that Paul writes out of emotion in some sense. It's, he's dealing with a season of, of tension within uh, Christianity. There's these religious leaders or these just hyper-legalistic Christians that are just very contentious and very law-bound and very rule-bound and very scripture-bound, but missing the point with regard to the gospel of grace and the inclusion of Gentiles into that promise so that everybody is one and there is no division. So um, in this book, Paul talks about equality. It's a fascinating thing. There was a prayer way back where it was kind of a righteous prayer. God, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. And Paul comes along and he says, uh, in Christ there are no distinctions neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, that all these class distinctions that you see, these differences, you gotta understand when you're in Christ, those go away and there's true freedom and equality and unity the way it was designed to be. And so Paul's coming full tilt at these very legalistic Christians and trying to to help them understand what the true gospel is and the, the whole joy of that and as he gets to the freedom in Christ passage he concludes it by contrasting what life is like without the spirit and what life is like with the spirit so chapter 5 verse 16 Galatians 5 16 says this so I say live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he continues on in verse 22 and says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. 
Now, there's some fascinating things in this passage to me. The first one is simply this. Um, these two, going back to verse 17, these two conflicting natures wage war against each other and that when the sinful nature is there, even what you know is right, even what you believe is right, even what you wish was true about you is not going to be what you do. That the sinful nature is going to kind of lead you out of, out of false emotions or corrupted emotions or desires that you give into and it's going to take you a different way. And so we're told what all these emotions are and what all these things are and it sounds a lot like the garbage we deal with on a weekly basis. It sounds like the petty arguments we see in the workplace. It sounds like the fights between wives or husbands or families. It sounds like competition. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. So this is the stuff that's going to ruin it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to poison it. It's going to mar it. It's going to break it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to keep us. It's going to prevent us. It's going to be an obstacle. It's going to be something we have to overcome. And one of these things that shows up in here is envy, but then what's fascinating to me is envy shows up again by itself at the end of this. So we got all these bad things, all these wrong emotions are going to lead us astray. And Paul says, no, you've died to this. Now we're going to keep in step with the Spirit, meaning we're going to walk this long, kind of slow road where we follow God, where we do it by faith, where the Spirit is guiding us. And in that, we're nurturing a whole different set of emotions, a whole different mindset, a whole different attitude. And those things that we're nurturing there are radically different. Instead of things that cause division, they're things that bring together relationship, like love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and gentleness and goodness. Do you notice that all of these are relational qualities? You don't have love outside of relationship. You don't have peace outside of relationship. Kindness and, and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. These are very much relational qualities. Even self-control has relational elements both with yourself because we're in relationship with ourselves. Do you guys understand that? that? That the choices and the emotions I make affect myself. That, that I, I'm in relationship with my own self as well as others. And what I do for myself affects others. If I'm impatient as a dad, how does it affect others? It doesn't just affect me, it, 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 it ripples out. And so here are the things we're gonna nurture and they're relational qualities. There's a 75 year study, I was just telling someone about this, like from Harvard University, most expensive study ever done. 75 years, they said something like either 20 million or 2 billion. I had a two in it. But it's been going for, <laughs> it's a big difference. Uh, it's been going for 75 years. And they had this sample group that, that came through Harvard way back when. And, and they're now it, it kind of concluding the whole, it's a lifelong study. And this sample group, they basically kept tabs on them all along. And then um, were kind of sifting through the data to answer this one question. What are the markers for true happiness? What are the markers for true happiness? And the guy that, that spent 30 years as kind of the, the, the proctor, I don't know, the, the head of this study, 
really, uh, wrote about five or six years ago an article, and then he got kind of beat up on it, the article. So he went back to the data, redid it, and then published a book, and came out what he said was more convicted than when he wrote kind of the, the shorter essay. And he said, it, it all comes back to warmth of relationships. And then he said, five words. It's all, I don't know, something like it's all about love, full stop. And, and he just says it's all about relationships. If you want to understand true happiness, it's all about relationships, which shouldn't surprise us when you look at the fruit of the Spirit. When you look at Jesus praying in John 17 and saying, listen, the end goal of all this is unity. And God, I pray that you help them find unity with each other and unity with us so that they can understand and enjoy the unity that we have, that all of this would come together. And so there's something fascinating about following the Spirit and the warmth of relational qualities and and the, the subtle, deep goodness that comes into that. And then listen to how it ends. It says, so because now that we live by the Spirit, Let's keep in step with the Spirit, not being conceited and provoking and envying each other. So envy is seen as one of the bad qualities, but now it's also positioned as an underlying thing that drives the difference between the good and the bad. Do you you see that? Envy is a bad thing when I'm standing here right now and I'm, I'm dealing with envy just like with jealousy or fits of rage or selfish ambition. But now it's being positioned as there's something at work, a discontentedness at work underneath things that really is going to dictate which of these two you, you head into or you steer yourself into in life. Envy cuts at the sanctity of the image of God in me. It cuts away at the sanctity of the image of God in me. The dignity that I have, the value that I have, the worth that I have, having the image of God in me, when I begin to envy, I'm saying somehow I'm insufficient or deficient and I have to have some kind of a a desire or a need or attention resolved for me to be truly who I believe at that moment I need to be or could be or should be. And if the sanctity of, of who I am and the lot I have in life and the image of God in me is not sufficient, if God's will for my life, the fruit of the Spirit that he would put into me, if that is not sufficient, then who or what is going to resolve the tension that I have or I feel I have when I'm stewing in envy? The who or the what is something other than God. When I am coming from a position of envy over time, and I'm saying there's something I lack that is beyond or outside of what God would have for me, what I'm essentially doing is steering myself into idolatry, meaning that there is something else other than God that I have to look to for the the salvation or the fixing or the fulfilling of what it is I feel like I need. And I will find or search for that thing. And when, I, and when I do find it, I will serve and worship it, believing that I need it, that it is necessary for me to be truly and completely fulfilled or satisfied. Do you understand that? That envy, a discontentedness 
with the state of affairs that God has brought into my life or planned for my life will ultimately lead me away from God and into idolatry. And in idolatry, I will no longer be serving God, but the selfish nature that wages war against the spiritual nature. So I want to take you to a few other passages. Turn to the book of Proverbs, if you will. Proverbs chapter 14. So not only does envy debase the image of God in a person, but think about it in very simplistic terms. If we feed envy, if we give vent to envy, it is the same as willing to be an infant again. It is the same as willing to be an infant again. It is the decision to strip maturity, experience, rationality, and wisdom and once again be controlled purely by wants and appetites. Do you see that? An infant, a very small child, only knows how to respond out of physical or very strong appetites, wants, wishes, emotions, pain, and pleasure. They don't have the benefit of maturity, wisdom, or experience. They haven't developed rationality. And so if we're going to feed envy, we're simply saying, I'm making a choice here. I'm willing to make a choice here to basically bring myself back to a juvenile state, being fully controlled by animalistic emotions. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says this. Proverbs 14, 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A heart at peace gives life to the body. When you're willing to close the door and say, I'm, I'm complete. Everything I, ha- everything I need, everything that's real, everything that, that's required for me to have life and contentment, I'm going to find either in God's will or in my relationship with my Savior that, that Christ truly is sufficient that it's not Christ plus something, but that God is sufficient, that he is a ground, that that rock holds me, that I don't need to anchor into that rock plus a certain salary or plus a a certain level of living or plus a certain level of whatever it might be, that when God is truly sufficient, when I have peace in that, I, I am allowed to now enjoy what I've got. I can stop thinking about more. I can look at what I have and say it's sufficient and begin to enjoy, be satisfied, and have the fruit of all of that. But when it's not yet enough, when it's not yet enough, when it's not yet as much as you have, or when it's not really fair that, that you're going to get to, or, or that your family doesn't have to deal with this, or that your child was, wasn't born this way, or when, when it's not fair, then I always have to try and resolve and fix. And if God's not going to help me, something else is going to have to. And I keep going, and I keep going, and I'm never able to enjoy, never able to be satisfied. And I keep going, and I keep striving, and literally day in, day out, over time, it rots me from the inside out. 
It rots me because I have gone so long without being nurtured into a position of strength and joy. I'm so malnourished in some sense from being able to be satisfied and content that over time I'm anemic, I'm malnourished, and I'm, and I'm rotting out. And you can tell it on me or I can tell it on you. Because I can look at you and just say, there's nothing about your life I really want because there's nothing about your life that you're owning. Everything I pick up about you is striving the will to be somebody else, the will to be other than you are, that there's no light in you, there's no confidence in you, there's no strength in you, there's nothing that I would envy about you in a good way. Envy rots the bones. Listen to what else Proverbs says. By the way, I was thinking about this and, and I was trying to like reflect on envy. And uh, it's amazing how one bout of envy can produce a month's worth of discontent. Have you ever thought about that? You see something that someone else has got, you don't just think about it for a minute. Like you hook it. And every time you see them or every time you go over to their house, you, you get reminded of it again. You know, I bet this house is more than what they can really afford they shouldn't really have this house. It's not really fair that they have this house. I mean, look at the kitchen. I don't have a kitchen like that. They must have cheated. I bet they're not good with their money. They're bad people. It's not fair that bad people get good stuff when I'm a good person and I don't have good stuff. You know what I'm saying? And then, and then pretty soon you're like, I don't want to go over there anymore. I don't like them. They're bad people. It's... I mean, we could play this game all day long, right? But one bout of envy creates a set of circumstances that slowly cuts away either your own joy or the relationship that you even have with somebody else or your ability to go to a part of town even. One bout of envy, one bout of envy can produce a month's worth of discontent. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Proverbs 23, 17 says this, if you're still in Proverbs. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Do not, do not let your heart envy sinners but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There's something um, that we don't call out enough. Uh, when, I was a, when I became a Christian, I used to, I used to go around to different youth groups and, and I would see kind of what goes on. And this was the very, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a generalization here, but here's the stereotype I would say. Uh, so we take our, our, our 15 and 16-year-olds who already think it's not fair because they watch movies, they watch TV, and everybody can kind of just sin away. You know what I'm talking about? It's like there's pleasure, I'm just going to go have it. No consequences, 
No downside, no, no, no bad thing, no, like, you know, this was the great thing about Titanic. It's this wonderful love affair. And I used to always be like, what they don't show is what it looks like for her if the boat had made it to, to New York and, and now she's going to be living under bridges with this guy a month from now. You know what I mean? Like they don't, because that's what he was doing, right? He was drawing, uh, <laughs> anyways, he was living under bridges and, and that was his life and it was this torrid love affair and I'm like, well, wait, wait a second. You know what I mean? Like real life doesn't just exist in, in, in a two-day time frame where there's no consequence to any action, Right? I, I love movies like Heat and, and bank robber movies, and I can't stand when the bad guy gets caught. I, 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 don't, I mean, I, I like when the bad, because I begin to like the bad guy, right? I watch him for two hours, and, they, 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 and he's a Robert De Niro, and I want him to get away, right? That, that's, what we, that's what gets um, developed in us when we're watching TV and movies, is, is this idea of that, wow, I want to be able to do all these things. Everyone else can do all these things. And we almost like root for them. But then you come to Christianity and it's all about what you can't do and you don't understand. And it's like, what am I? I'm just not supposed to be able to be like anyone else. I, mean, I don't get to have any pleasure in life. And so at age 16, 17, this is hitting you hard. And then we bring in these like 22-year-old people to give their testimony. This is where I'm going with this. We bring in these 22-year-old people to do testimonies, and a lot of them aren't very mature. And I used to watch this. It was, this is how it would go. I did this sin, and it was really fun. I did this sin. I was pretty good at it, too. I did this sin. I was a real stud. I did this sin. You know, and then I finally realized that that it's not good, and that um, it's not the right thing to do. And so I gave my life to Jesus, and and you need to give your life to Jesus too. You know, what you know what I'm talking about? You know how a 16-year-old hears that? Well, uh, that doesn't sound very fair. How come you got to do all the cool stuff and then give your life to Jesus? And I have to give my life to Jesus now. <laughs> like that doesn't seem to really make sense. What? What seems to make sense is, is what you did. <laughs> why can't I do what you did? Why, I want to buy that one. Like, why don't I just take the next five years and sin? Because Jesus will forgive me for all of it as soon as I'm ready. And then I'll say I'm sorry and, you know. But you see what I'm saying? Um, we don't do a good job of saying that there's something about envying the wicked that's dumb. Because I lived enough life to realize this guy, when he was saying, I did this, and I was really cool, and I did this, and I was really good at it, he was actually acting out of his immaturity and wanting these high school kids to like him. But if he had really gone far enough down any of these roads, what he would be saying would be, I made a big mistake, and I chased sin in this area of life all the way down, and it ruined my life. And I was miserable. And I tried to find satisfaction over here, and I can't tell you the destruction that it wreaked. 
And I tried to find pleasure engaging this way, following what the movies would show me or what TV would show me. And it left me with nothing but emptiness. Now you can, you can listen to what the world's telling you and try to go down these roads, but listen, I've been there and the grass isn't greener on the other side of the hill. It's empty. And you're not going to find satisfaction. Now, that's really what I think anyone who has chased sin is, is going to tell you if they've got maturity. So I began to, to learn two things. One, don't let 22-year-olds come around high school kids unless they're mature. <laughs> praise God for, for Luke Such. Um, praise God for, for uh, our youth pastor. Um, number two, anyone who really has pushed on sin knows that, that what the TVs paint or what the TV shows paint or, or whatever you, you think you might see, if you really scratch beneath the surface, it's a mirage. Trying to suck satisfaction out of sin is like trying to quench your thirst by chewing on dirt. It doesn't work. It masquerades. And Proverbs says, listen, it's a natural part of life that you're going to look at sinners and you're going to think, maybe if I was like them, maybe it would be pretty cool if I could, I could do that too. And, and Proverbs is saying, don't make that mistake. Always be zealous for the fear of the Lord Always understand that there's only one place, one source that you're really going to be grounded. Only one thing that makes a promise. And it says, follow me. And I won't bless you today, maybe. I won't bless you in all the ways you want to be blessed. But follow me. Because only in me, over time, will you be blessed in the ways that you can be blessed and find the satisfaction, the true satisfaction at a deep, relational, spiritual level that you really crave. Now, sure, you might find pleasure for a moment or for a day or for a short time if you veer off, but in the end, it will only lead to destruction. Stay on this straight and narrow. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Do not envy the wicked. There's something fascinating about um, Cain and Abel. Turn to Genesis, the early part of Genesis, if you would. Genesis chapter 4. This is a part of the story that I'd never really realized before, and it's been impacting me as of, of recent. Genesis chapter 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. We'll just pick it up in the uh, second half of verse 2. And so. It says this, now Abel kept flocks. He was a, a sheep herder, that kind of a thing. A rancher, whatever you want to say. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil, was more of a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel, however, brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain... In his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. I love how scripture sometimes says things that we just don't do in our culture. But um, the emotion of anger manifests on the face as a downcast, discontented person. I've started to, um, with my children, um, talk to them about their face. 
because the face reflects what's in the heart. Or if you change your face, in a lot of ways, it will change what's in your heart. If you put on a cheerful face, it will affect your heart. It's amazing, the connection here. And so here at the beginning of the book of Genesis, you see this obvious, um, wonderfully simple portrayal of how the heart and the face are connected. So Cain's mad. Man, what what do I do wrong? How come he's getting looked on favorably by God? What, What makes him better than me? What makes his stuff better than my stuff? I wish I was like him. I wish he didn't have. I wish there was parody here. And, and he's, he's angry and his face is downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So God speaks to Cain and says, listen, just do what's right. Follow what is right. Do what you know to be true. Walk in the ways that I would lead you in. If you do that, will you not be accepted? Will you not get everything that it is you desire? Will you not find the satisfaction or or the resolution to this tension that you are angry about? Will that not fix what is broken? Right? But he says, if you don't do what is right, if you veer, if you're manipulating, if you're trying to fix it yourself, if you're grasping, if you're striving, if you're doing these things, guess what? Sin is crouching at your door. Like when you walk out of your door, it's like, uh, anyone ever been afraid of snakes? This is, what, this, is what, this is why. I mean, they're devilish little, I mean, they're so sneaky. You know what I'm talking about? They're so creepy. I, I can do spiders all day long. I cannot do snakes, right? But they're so, um, where are the Gerhards? They're in here somewhere. Um, they can do snakes. I can't do snakes. But, but you're always afraid of snakes because you're afraid they're, gonna, they're hiding where you can't see them and they're going to spring out at you, right? You know, they're under your bed. They're behind the door. They're, they're behind that basket. And you can't see what's behind the basket. But you're, you're, you know what I mean? You're kind of afraid of them getting at you. And, and what God is saying is sin is crouching, kind of hiding it's kind of it's gonna it's gonna it's behind you and it's gonna get you sin will get you if you don't choose to follow and do what is right the temptations you see in the movies will get you if you don't choose to say no to those and yes to what you know is right the things that are in your heart that you're harboring, if you don't choose to recognize them and say, I'm not going that way, I'm going I'm to resolve this in following God and doing what's right. If you don't make that choice, those sins, they'll get you. It's crouching at your, des- uh, at your door and it desires to have you, to devour you, to master you, to where you are under it. You're under its control and it will lead you where it wants you to go. Sin is active. Sin is real. When we're talking about not finishing well, 
when we're talking about the, the, the weird feelings of, man, I'm supposed to be so radical, but I don't always feel it, right? If we don't define the, the game, if we don't define that there's something here that, if we, if we, that will get us, we're going to fall into this. So here's, here's the crazy thing that's been tripping me out about this passage. Verse 8. We know this verse, right? Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. What's tripped me out about this passage is I never really saw the the sequence before. It's not just that Cain was filled with emotion and went and killed his brother. Cain was filled with emotion and then he had a time out where God talked to him. And God said, listen, this is how it is. You do this, it'll go right, it'll go well. You don't do this, and you're going to be owned by those emotions. You're going to be owned by your sin. You're going to be controlled by that sin. And then what happens? Cain goes out and kills his brother. I feel like For me and for us, this is the part we're missing. We're in America with a lot of TV and a lot of internet and a lot of social media. You know that 80s documentary I was talking about? They actually, and I was trying to think, I was like, you know, I think there's something to it. But they were actually making an argument that under Reagan, they they pinpointed the year they say consumerism began in America where it became the national thing to buy and to spend and to have. That the status symbol for people just on this year took off and then consumer credit and the whole idea that they, they pinpointed it. And I was like, man, I, I didn't have a whole lot of life before that so I don't know that I saw the change but I remember And I've grown up with this idea of more and competition and envy. We are stewing in a a context that engenders and feeds and stirs up envy. We're sitting in a position of not fair. A lot of us are struggling with appetites and hunger for things we think we need, things we think we ought to have, things that other people have or get to enjoy that we don't get to enjoy or have, and we're stewing in it, and our face is downcast, and our hearts are being poisoned by this emotion called envy. And God, all throughout the scriptures, and when we come to church, is trying to say, listen now, Listen to where this is going to go. It will lead you out and slaughter you. It will control you. It will master you. It will ruin your marriage. It will lead you into affairs. It will lead you where you ultimately do not want to go, should not go. You got to recognize what is happening. And if you do what is right, will it not go well with you? Make the choice. Define the terms and resolve this issue that you're going to go the long, slow way of a beat 
obedience where you will finish well, where you will be able to sustain, where you will find true happiness in this relationship you can have with me. But this thing will kill you. It desires to master you. You are at war right now with something that is trying to stir up in you the choice or the desire to steer into sin. God tells us, I think, before we go out and make the mistake of letting ourselves be led astray. He warned Cain. He defined it for him. You've got this choice. And Cain didn't hear. Three application points. The first one, kind of along the lines of defining the challenges that we face is just this. Choose your friends carefully. I've, I'm watching so many of my friends' lives be ruined because we think that peer pressure is only for high school kids. It absolutely is not. Choose your friends carefully. Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. The quickest way to get owned by sin is to follow people who are going to take you down the path of destruction. They will just lead you right into it. And so you choose your peer group well. Who are you spending your time with? Who is putting ideas in your head? Who is nurturing the different parts of, of your soul or your emotions? Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. Peer influence is as active and potentially more harmful in adults than in children. I believe that. Because I think sometimes the consequences of sin in adults is worse. I mean, a 13-year-old can get in a car accident for sure and get mortally wounded or, or mortally wound somebody else. But as a dad with kids that depend on me, a wife that looks to me, a church congregation in some sense that I'm in a leadership relationship with, if I circle up with the wrong peer group and I fall, the consequences are potentially more harmful with adults than with children. How much more should we guard ourselves as adults then, therefore, than as children? Your peer group matters. Your church matters. Getting yourself into a small group matters, or a women's group, or a men's group. It matters. Helping steer your spouse into a group where you know they're going to be surrounded with the right kind of people matters. Are your significant friends, the ones you're spending the most time with, and think about even when you're not with them, fanning your zeal for the Lord or feeding your earthly passions? I, um, you know, I, I tell Tamara sometimes, like, uh, I mean, you guys know this. Preaching for me is, is a, is a, is a love-hate thing. It's a love-hate thing. So sometimes I'll come into a sermon or I'll be thinking about a sermon all week and I'm just like, yeah, I, I really don't want to do it. 
I don't want to, I don't want to preach. I just want to find 12 people that really are, are, want God. And I just, want to go, I just want to go off to the side with those 12 people and I want us to talk about this stuff. I, 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 that, that's what feels right. You know what I mean? I'm preaching to a whole crowd where I know there's a lot of people that have peer groups they're not going to let go of because by golly, they've made the choice that that's what they want or that's what they're going to hold on to or giving into these desires is what they're going to have. But they'll show up on church or you might show up on church and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I wish you would let go of that. I hope for that. I would spend a lot of time with you if you would, but I know some people just aren't going to hear. And I'm like, but there's others that I can save from a life of destruction. There's others that are, that are struggling and are open. And I want to get with those people and I want us to have a deep, meaningful conversation because this really matters. It matters today. It matters in your marriage. It matters as a parent with your kids. This is not, Truth is not something that's just an exercise in, in rehearsing information. Truth for me, grappling with spiritual things, is something that, that, that ought to go to the deepest levels of who we are in conversation such that not only we hear, but there's change or there's a heart cry to God that there's something happening in all this. And so like, if we can do that, in a big group setting, then, then I can preach. If not, it's like I just want I want to go hide off on the side and, and, and talk truth. But some of you today got to offer up. You have to offer. You, sin is crouching at your door. And you have friends that are leading you right to it. And I don't care how funny they are. I don't care how good they make you feel. You got to choose your peer group. Second thing is a theology of gratitude. What, re what replaces envy? What combats envy? We're talking about this thing that weighs on us. It's like a weight pulling us down that I wish I longed for. If only I had, and we, we feel that weight. What's the counterbalance to it? It's thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude. Let me read a couple verses, because if we're going to talk about a theology of gratitude, what you're going to begin to find out here is that song, song in Scripture is directly connected to gratitude. Psalm 69.30, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95.2, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 100 verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. We gotta discern what's feeding envy. Some of you need to get off social media. I mean, it's, I, mean, I, mean I'm not, I sound like the old pastor now, you know, that says things that's like, you can say that. I know you're supposed to say that, but none of us are going to do it. Like, now I sound like that old pastor, but I'm dead serious. If you're looking at thousands of people's lives and the best snapshot or Instagram 
or a quote or whatever of their lives, and you're spending hours a day steeping in that, if you are not able to deal with that because there's not enough satisfaction in your life or in your relationship with God, if that's not a healthy thing, then you've got to cut it off. This is a, one of the most unique times in the history of the world. Like envy for most generations was living in a small town with people you grew up with your whole life. So you kind of know that their life sucks too, right? And, and that's like, that's like the, the height of envy. Oh, someone got a new saddle with their name like en engraved in it. Wow, I wish I had a new saddle. And you're going to deal with that, and you, you're go, you'll, you'll overcome that. Now it's like, you know what I'm saying? If you can't handle that, cut it off. And replace it with things that are going to nurture what is right and what is true. The things that are going to remind you what God is doing in your life. How he is blessing. How he is faithful. The beautiful thing about the Psalms, they always start with need, intention, and pain and hurt, and then they work themselves out to the, the bottom of that particular psalm where they always come back and go, you know what? But as I think about it, God, you've always proven yourself to me. You've always proven yourself to us as people. And I know and I trust that you will speak a word of faithfulness into this. We have to be able to have that kind of a, a relationship with God where we move into that thanksgiving and that gratitude. Um, in, uh, in Philippians, we'll move fast, fast here. Philippians chapter four. This is one of those like Christian greeting card verses. You know, you go to a Christian bookstore and then you see it and you're just kind of like, oh, I'll never read that verse again because it just ruined it for me. Because it was just way too, because Hallmark's bad, Christian Hallmark is, you know what I mean? I know you, you guys know what I mean. I know, you know what I mean. All right. So Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, like social media, spend hours on such things. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What are you marinating in? And is it causing your heart to be full of gratitude such that your face is anointed with the oil of gladness? Or are you stewing in the things that are going to make you walk around discontent, feeling like you're not getting all you're entitled to? Entitlement is the gap between what God's lot is for you in life right now and what you believe it should be. And if you carry that around too long, it will affect everything about you physically and spiritually. The last thing, so the third thing here, by way of application is confession. Confession. Ecclesiastes 4.4 4 says this, and I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Human interaction 
produces envy. It builds up. As we go out into the world, it builds up in us. Human interaction produces envy. We have to be able to offload that. That comes in confession. God, I'm struggling with this. God, I need to lay this on you. I need to take and avail myself of strength because as I go out into the world, it produces naturally envy in me. All achievement springs from one person's envy of another. One of the express purposes, please hear this last sentence. One of the express purposes of spiritual interaction, either with God or others, spiritual relationship, one of the express purposes of spiritual interaction or relationship with God and others is the reduction of envy. One of the express intended purposes of that kind of interaction is the reduction of envy. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Do you see how all that couples together? May we let the message of Christ dwell richly among us as we teach and admonish one another as the pure group God has built in and intended for us, as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and songs and praise and worship as we're singing it in the car, as the words go through our, our, our minds, or as we're singing it here at church, songs from the Spirit, singing to God as it were, with gratitude, nurturing thanksgiving in our hearts. Amen.